Welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks with expert advice from Jim Lang, Pittsburgh-based CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert. Jim is also the author of Retire Secure, Pay Taxes Later. To find out more about his book, his practice, Lang Financial Group, and how to secure Jim as a speaker for your next event, visit his website at paytaxeslater.com. Now, get ready to talk smart money. Welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. We are talking smart money. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm Hannah Haytanen K. joining Jim Lang, nationally recognized IRA 401k and Roth IRA conversion expert. Jim is the author of the bestseller, Retire Secure, with testimonials from Larry King, Charles Schwab, Jane Bryant Quinn, Ed Slott, and 60 other financial professionals. Joining us tonight are special guests, Steve Coleman and Matt Schwartz. Steve is a key member of the Retire Secure team at Jim Lang's office, specializing in income taxes and estate and Roth conversion planning. He and Jim, as co-authors, were awarded the CFP Board Article Award for the Roth Surreal Advantage, published nearly a decade ago. And Steve has a long background of Roth IRA conversion expertise. In fact, the book that you mentioned, uh, Retire Secure, has a lot of quantitative analysis, and Steve did practically all of it. And I go around the country giving talks to um, financial advisors regarding Roth IRA conversions. And I'm going to say maybe one or two out of a thousand, if that, has the degree of sophistication and the ability to do projections and come up with excellent conclusions as as Steve. So really we're talking about a, a really premier Roth IRA conversion expert. Thanks, Jim. I'm glad to be here to talk about the new Roth conversion law with you. Steve, I wanted to start off by asking you if you think the 2010 conversion law is making much of a difference. Oh, absolutely. I've uh, seen so many clients and done so much planning, and there were so many people who couldn't afford, or excuse me, couldn't um, convert to a Roth IRA in previous years that with this new law now can convert in 2010 and they're converting even larger amounts in 2010 than ever before. Lots of money is being converted, which means a lot of money is going to go to the U.S. Treasury in the short term, but it means a lot of people are going to have some long-term benefits in the long term. And Jim, what do you think about this? Is the 2010 conversion law making much of a difference? Well, first of all, I've been a, a, a big Roth IRA conversion advocate for over a decade, and it's not because I'm, quote, really into Roth IRAs. It's because I and Steve run projections and we run numbers and we say, okay, let's take the status quo. That is, Mr. Status Quo doesn't make a Roth IRA conversion, and we make reasonable assumptions about interest and what's going to happen in the future, and we run those projections. And then we say, well, let's take example B where Mr. Um, Roth does make a Roth IRA conversion. We run projections, and it turns out in almost all cases that the person who makes Roth IRA conversions are much better off than people who don't. So we, we know this. We have, we have this published in peer-reviewed journals, and really the question for a lot of people is how much and when. So this is something that Steve and I have been doing for over 10 years. The thing that is really exciting now is that 
people, regardless of their income, are able to make Roth IRA conversions. So, for example, let's say that your income has consistently been $100,000 or more in the past, you weren't allowed to make a Roth IRA conversion. So even though I've really been enjoying working in this area and we've run thousands of numbers, it's been for people who have incomes of less than $100,000. Now, within, with no income limitations, and that's the really big news, there's no income limitation for the people who make Roth IRA conversions. To me, the floodgates are opening for high-income taxpayers, and Steve and I are, are perfectly situated to help these people because we've been doing it already for 10 years. You know, to me, the issue is... Um, for a lot of people, how much to convert, when to convert, um, and coming up with a long-term Roth IRA conversion plan. And we talk about that in our workshops. But while, while we're here, Steve, maybe I'll ask you, what, what kind of factors do you consider? So I, I know we work together, and I like to come up with a couple ideas and a couple of starting points of how much somebody should convert or when they should convert. But but ultimately, you're, you're really the person who, who runs the numbers and who does the quantitative an analysis. What kind of factors do you take into account in your meetings when you develop a Roth IRA conversion plan? Well, there's quite a few factors to take into account, some of which are objective factors and a lot of which are subjective factors. The objective factors are the things you might first imagine when you think about Roth conversions that being that when you do a Roth conversion you have to pay income tax on the amount you can you convert so oh, wait wait let me interrupt you for one quick one quick moment there are right, you have you're, you're making let's say you make a Roth IRA conversion of a hundred thousand dollars and to keep life <clears throat> excuse me and to keep life um, simple let's assume that we're talking about a 25 percent tax rate the first question is, where are you going to get the money to pay the tax on the $100,000 conversion? In other words, you're going to owe the IRS $25,000 on this conversion. Where do you recommend that people get the money to pay for that tax? Well, if they have money outside of the IRA, outside of the tax-deferred investment environment, that's the best place to take the money to pay the tax. Um, if you pay the tax from the IRA itself, let's say because all your money is in the IRA or a retirement plan, then it doesn't come out to be as beneficial to you because part of the long-term benefit of a Roth IRA is that the tax money you use to pay the conversion grows but gets taxed every year on interest dividends and capital gains. This is another layer of tax that does not occur inside a Roth IRA and so it's better to have money to pay the tax in your savings outside of the retirement plans. That's right. In fact, didn't you run numbers that said if you if you take away the estate t tax advantages and you take away the advantages of a minimum required distribution, it's actually basically a break-even, isn't it? Yeah, as long as the funds are invested the same way in the Roth as they would have been in a traditional IRA, it would always be the same in value no matter how long you go. Unfortunately, you do have required minimum distributions when you're 70 and a half years old, 
And what that does is it moves money from the tax-deferred environment in an IRA into the taxable environment in what I'll call after-tax funds, where it's taxed on interest, dividends, and capital gains every year. And over the long term, your money just doesn't perform as well as, as if it were in a tax-free account the rest of your life, like in a Roth IRA. So what you're basically saying then is if you have the after-tax dollars, then you should use those dollars to pay the tax on the conversion. If you don't, it still might be worthwhile, but it isn't quite as beneficial. Is that a fair summary? That's right. It still could have some advantages. All right. I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, but I think that that's an important <clears throat> point. Mm -hmm. Why don't you go on with, with a few more of your factors? Okay. So uh, the, one of the main factors then would be how much tax do you pay when you do the conversion? Is the amount of your conversion so large that you're going to be bumped up into a higher tax rate when you do the conversion? Or, as you can now imagine, with no income limit for Roth conversions, people who are in the very top tax bracket can do a conversion and end up not paying any more tax percentage-wise by doing a conversion because they're already in the top tax bracket. So for those sorts of people, uh, that issue isn't such a concern for them, and that's why 2010 and in the future years is going to be such a big boon to uh, the wealthier people who are already in the top tax bracket and why this new law is a fantastic investment tool for many, many people who never got to take advantage of it before. But, Steve, I know that you have run some numbers for some high-income and high-net-worth clients, and I think in some cases if they made too large a Roth IRA conversion and they didn't have a minimum required distribution later on and that they, they were retired, that sometimes they would be in a lower tax bracket, and you haven't told these people to convert everything. You just told them to convert um, a certain amount but less than their entire Roth. Is that is that also right? Oh, yeah. That's usually the case. Um, there's a condition I call over-converting, where maybe you convert so much to a Roth that you don't have any income the rest of your life because all you have is your Social Security income and maybe some pension income, but it's not enough to use up your very low tax brackets in the future, like the 0% tax bracket and the 15% tax bracket. And if you pay 35% tax when you do the conversion, it makes it hard to justify converting that much money. Yeah, in fact, I think, didn't you do an analysis where if somebody was paying taxes at 35% and then later they just went to 28%, that it took them something like 14 years to break even? Does that, does that sound right to you? Yeah, that sounds right. As a matter of fact, just today I was working on the the calculation spreadsheet, which shows the break-even period from going from 35% tax on the conversion to 25% tax the rest of your life is a 17-year break-even period. Uh, but taking that a step further, uh, it's not just your tax rate the rest of your life, and this is one of the subjective factors to consider that's very important, and that is uh, your beneficiary's tax rate your children, perhaps, or perhaps even your grandchildren's tax rate? Well, I, I think what you're, what you're referring to is if you use the old rule that, that, that you and I have developed, 
which is let's assume that you have three types of money. You have plain old after-tax dollars, savings, uh, money outside any type of retirement plan. Then you have traditional IRAs and retirement plans, and then you have Roths. What we usually advocate, sub- subject to some exception, is first spend your after-tax dollars, then spend your IRA dollars, and only last should you spend your Roth dollars. So since, particularly in your analysis, you usually don't recommend people convert their entire IRA to a Roth, people usually end up with that. That is, some after-tax, some IRA, and some Roth. If we're going to spend first the after-tax dollars, then we're going to spend the IRA dollars, it's very likely that you're going to die with Roth IRA dollars. And what you're saying now, if if I'm understanding right, is if you're really going to do this analysis correctly, you have to take into account the tax bracket of your children and even perhaps your grandchildren. Is that right? That's right. Um, As you know, the benefit of the Roth occurs over a long period of time. The longer period of time there is, the more of a benefit there is going to be. And so when we're talking about 50 or 80 years uh, we're talking about having your children inherit your money and maybe your grandchildren. So that their tax situation, their financial situation, what state they live in are all relevant factors. Well, I, I like that. And it's the, the thing that one of the things that I really like about Roth IRA conversions is it, it is true, genuine, multi-generation planning that doesn't cost you money. So, for example, if I say, hey, Steve, I have the best life insurance policy in the world for you, and, boy, all you're going to have to pay is, you know, $100,000, and your kids are going to get so much more money, this is going to be wonderful. And that might even be true, but ultimately it's still money out of your pocket. You are reducing your purchasing power, and you're increasing your children's or grandchildren's purchasing power. With a Roth IRA conversion, you're actually increasing your purchasing power during your lifetime. So, so let's 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 just talk about this. Let's everybody's you know we always talk about estate planning, the kids and the grandkids, and we'll get to that. But let's let's assume that you don't have kids, or you have kids and you hate your kids, and all you really care about is you or you and your wife. Would you still make a Roth IRA conversion? Is it still as favorable? How would, how would that play into it if, if you said, hey, look, I educated those kids. I put braces on those kids. I'm done. If there's anything left over, that's a bonus. But I'm mainly interested in me. Mm-hmm. Would you still do a Roth conversion? Well, you certainly might benefit from a Roth conversion in many situations. We have many clients who are in that boat who maybe they don't have kids. And uh, they're thinking about the benefit during their own lives. And then what is more important is the tax rates that they're going to face for the rest of their own lives and the future tax rates they're going to face and how much tax they pay on the conversion. And obviously, if you're going to pay less tax on the conversion than you would pay, say, in 2011 or 2020 or for the rest of their lives, then obviously a Roth conversion is a very good idea. If they pay slightly more tax on the conversion, it's still probably a good idea. And so we want to take a look at those future tax rates 
And as you know, future tax rates could be higher for a lot of people. And those factors come into uh, play quite a bit. But in answer to your question, yes, uh, it could still make sense. Well, well, didn't you do some analysis where if a guy, let's say he's 65 years old, and he makes a $100,000 conversion. Now, before, he was in the 25% bracket. But now we're adding $100,000 to his income. So now, part, at least part of that Roth IRA conversion income is taxed at 28%. And let's say, let's call him Mr. Roth. And let's call the guy who didn't, who has the exact same amount of money, Mr. Status Quo. Didn't you run some analysis comparing Mr. Roth and Mr. Status Quo? What happens 20 years after you make the conversion? Oh, yes, and uh, that's right. And, and it comes out to be quite a good advantage uh, because uh, if you don't convert, that money is going to be taxable income at some point in the future. And uh, the advantages of the Roth and moving money out of the taxable environment into the tax-free environment is, is such an overwhelming uh, tool and powerful tool for the Roth that it, it works out to their advantage in many cases, yes. And, and wasn't that somewhere around $40,000 in 20 years? That is, if you converted $100,000, that they would be better off by $40,000? Yeah, something in those, along those lines, right. Okay, thanks, Steve. Um, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back to talk more smart money. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQVAM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back, where we're talking smart money with Jim Lang and Steve Coleman. We'll also be speaking with Matt Schwartz in a little wet bit. Um, Steve, can you tell us how you feel about the, about the law to spread 2010 conversion income to 2011 and 2012? And, and, and before you say how you feel about it, would you please describe how it works? That's probably something yeah, about sure. I'd be happy want to. Leave. to. Um, the new law says that if you do a Roth conversion in 2010, that income is required to be reported in 2011 and 2012, unless you make a special election on your 2010 tax return to allow you to tax it in 2010. Well, that's totally different than all the other years it, the rules on Roth conversions have always been taxed in the year you do the conversion. And I think it's deceitful of the IRS to do it that way because, as you may or may not know, the tax rates are probably going to go up in 2011. For example, it's commonly uh, known that the 33% tax bracket will be a 36% tax bracket and the 35% tax bracket will be a 39.6% tax bracket. So the IRS is rubbing their grubby little hands together saying, oh boy, let's collect even more money. Let's make them pay tax at the higher rates. Wait, wait, Steve, can I ask you a quick question? Is that, when you say that the rates are going to be higher, is that something that, that you think is going to happen just because of the general 
way the country's going, or is that already on the books right now? It's already on the books. It so, was so part word- of the George Bush tax law from 2001, 2002 time frame, and what's happening is they're going to sunset that law. So the law right now is that those tax rates go up, and under the Obama administration, he doesn't want to tax people earning less than $250,000. So he's going to probably keep the 28% tax rate and the 25% tax rate where they are. But if he doesn't pass a new tax law, even those rates are going to go up in 2011. So so what you're saying is even forgetting any changes in the future, even forgetting any of the needs that we have in terms of funding health care and the wars and everything else, the existing tax rates are the taxpayers that we're talking about are going to have to pay more tax, and then if there's additional taxes, then presumably the Roth IRA conversion is going to be even more beneficial. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. All right, all right. why don't you go back to, to 2010 versus 2011 and 12? Well, I like my clients to pay as little tax as they have to. Amen. So, <laughs> so um, we generally recommend they pay the tax in tax year 2010, and and not only is it an advantage because they're paying less tax in 2010, but if their Roth conversion plan is a multi-year plan where they're going to convert a certain amount every year up to a certain uh, tax bracket, for example, uh, then they can do additional conversions in 2011 and 12 while having an additional conversion in 2010 be taxed in that year. If they don't make the special election, well, then they're sort of missing the opportunity to do any conversion in 2010 at the lower tax rates. So you like you often end up with the ideal, based on running the numbers, is a series of Roth IRA conversions, not a one-time shot, but a series often trying to stay in lower tax brackets, and if they're not careful about the election, that can that can blow the strategies. Is that right? Yes, Jim. The conversion plans we do for people are usually multi-year plans and even lifetime plans because the new rule is that anyone can do a Roth conversion in any year. Now, that tax law may not permanently be the case. The IRS might eventually say we can't do Roth conversions anymore because they're losing out on future revenue. But for now, they can always do conversions. And for many people, it makes sense to convert and pay a lower tax rate so it's a multi-year conversion plan. So in other words, you might say, well, you might have a long-term plan to convert, say, $500,000, but it might be prudent to, say, convert $100,000 a year for five years, depending on individual circumstances. Is that is that yes. a possibility? Yeah, that's right. And so, um, so the timing of the taxes paid is an important issue. And also, uh, the other subjective factors to consider include things like when is a taxpayer going to retire? Is their income going to change in the future? Maybe they're going to have lower tax rates by virtue of having less income because they retire. There may be a significant window of opportunity for some people to convert and pay less taxes. So we have to look at the tax rates they're facing, not only in 2010, but in 2011, 12, and really for the rest of their life. 
So what, what you're really saying is is that it's good to have, if you will, a lifetime Roth IRA conversion plan of how much to convert and when to convert and might be multiple year and it might be you know, very long term. Is that right? That's right. And of course, it's very objective for me to calculate their 2010 tax. I can do it with uh, reasonable precision. But for 2015 or 2020, I mean, things get a lot less objective and a lot more sub subjective the further out in the future you go. Well, that's true. But I, I think one of the things that you do that I think is very unique, and I, you know, I run around the country talking to all these advisors, and I actually just did an eight-hour how would you guys like to hear me for eight hours talk about Roth IRA conversions? And the, one of the problems with, with trying to help these guys run numbers, something that you do, is that they're not CPAs that know how to use the tax program. So you not only use the specialized software for Roth IRA conversions, but you actually take out our 1040 software, if you will. Let's call it super turbocharged turbo, because we obviously have a high-end one. And you actually put the numbers in, and you can find out about, let's say, little surprises like phase-out of itemized deductions or alternative minimum tax, etc. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of surprises there. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was doing one today where a taxpayer was paying 35% tax, even though they were in the 33% tax bracket. And then for the next level of conversion, they only paid 33% tax, even though they were in the 35% tax bracket because of the alternative minimum tax. So there's loss of credits, alt-min tax, and taxability of Social Security, and uh, even the Medicare tax deducted from your future Social Security income. These are all hidden little tricks, hidden little taxes that the IRS plays on you as a taxpayer that you're not really aware of unless you use the tax software program and have somebody knowledgeable to figure it out. Well, let's say you're, you like to be a little bit of a do-it-yourselfer. It sounds like it's going to be very difficult to actually calculate what your effective tax bracket is because of all these items. Is that right? Yeah, it is very difficult, and, and sometimes... Uh, it leaves an opportunity on the table if you aren't aware of all those factors. And and then sometimes I remember um, you telling people that they shouldn't convert when they thought that they were in the 15% bracket, and you showed them what bracket did you come up with with some of the people that, that were in the 15% yeah. bracket well, to convert, and it was the number was still less than $67,000. But what, what tax bracket yeah, were they in? Yeah, they, they could be typically if they get Social Security income and uh, more and more of it gets taxed as your income goes up, these people in the 15% tax bracket, quote, unquote, were really paying 27% tax on the conversion. And, uh, and even there's a level where they would technically be in the 25% tax bracket paying like 45% uh, tax on a Roth conversion amount. So uh, it's very deceitful the way the tax laws are set up. Um, I, I don't get, think that the IRS meant for it to be that deceitful, but uh, you just have to know what you're doing and know the tax implications of uh, the taxes you pay on a Roth conversion. So, so let me ask you this. Does it make sense if you're, if you're a listener out there, and let's, let's say that you have a CPA or, or may, maybe you do it on your own, does it make sense to hire a qualified professional 
to help do some of these projections to help you come up with a long-term Roth IRA conversion plan. Oh, yeah. Uh, two heads are definitely better than one, and using a consultant, in my opinion, is a very important thing to do. Okay. All right. Um, I had another question about something that we that we like to do a lot. In fact, I actually wrote an article back in 19, or I'm sorry, in 2002 about this, and it is taking advantage of a particular portion of the law where you can, and the technical word is recharacterize, but I like to think of it as undo a Roth IRA conversion. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what, how that works and why that might be an important buffer if you think that um, we're living in volatile times with, with investment um, rates of return and values of investments going up and down. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this has come into play quite a bit over the last year or two where people did a Roth conversion. For example, let's say they did a $100,000 Roth conversion, but the stock market dropped after they did the conversion, and maybe their Roth IRA only ended up being worth $50,000. Well, those poor people had to pay tax on $100,000 were it not for this undo rule, which allowed them to undo their conversion and not pay any tax at all on the conversion and put it back in the traditional IRA where it should be. For some of those people, they were then able to do a Roth conversion the next year and pay tax on only $50,000 or, in some cases, convert another 100000 the next year but in any case, they save a lot of money in taxes. All right, so let's say for discussion's sake, you do a Roth IRA conversion, and and let's say you do it in 2000, in January or February 2010, and um, so you're fully expecting to, and let's even say that it's going to be taxed at the 25% bracket, and you're fully expecting to pay $25,000 in taxes, or you even file the return next April and you do pay $25,000 in taxes, and that $100,000 um, investment now goes to 50000 So you're pretty upset because you paid tax on 100000 and it's only worth 50000 You're saying you can recharacterize or undo it. Yeah, you so, can undo it all the way up to the October 15th date after the year you do the conversion. All right. Well, that sounds like a, a great thing in, in the event that you're, let's say, on the fence of whether you should convert or not. Or whether the amount is if you actually um, end up converting what turns out to be a loser, you can recharacterize that. Mm -hmm. All right. And and are there strategies that you can recharacterize that during the year that you convert, or is it always better to wait until 2011 to recharacterize? Can well, uh, I guess there's no immediate rush to do it in the year you convert. Um, other than the fact that you have to wait 30 days to convert the same money. But typically people aren't converting their entire IRA accounts, so they could wait until after year-end to recharacterize it to see if the investment comes back. But uh, another advantage to doing a recharacterization is that, as you alluded to, you may want to convert a higher amount if you're not certain of the amount to convert, and then you can recharacterize a piece of the Roth conversion that you've done. And 
you can use hindsight to determine, number one, how well is the investment performed, and number two, what are the real tax effects now that you're able to look backwards and see your real tax return. Maybe some factors of your income weren't completely known when you did the conversion early in the year. And so it's a very useful tool, and I always tell people who do conversions to take a look back, um, say, in June of the following year to see how the investment is performing. Okay, and, and, and I, I guess what I'll add to that is I sometimes, since, since it's very hard and very problematic to recharacterize a portion of one particular account, it might make more sense to separate um, some IRAs into several accounts and perhaps recharacterize the one that does the worst. The other thing that I will mention is sometimes what I like to do is to recharacterize during the year. So let's say it's 2010, and let's say you want to convert $100,000 and you convert it, and it goes down to 50000 but you still wanted to convert $100,000 in 2010, what I might like to do is recharacterize the first 100000 and then make a Roth IRA conversion of 100000 of a different IRA. And that way, for the same tax cost on $110,000 worth of income, get a $100,000 Roth instead of a $50,000 Roth. Yeah, that's right. So there's a lot of strategies to be used with the recharacterization rule. Steve, could you just summarize the new laws for 2010 and just yeah. wrap this up a little bit? Yeah, sure. The, the new law for 2010 affects high-income taxpayers because they can do a conversion now. They're also the ones who have lots of after-tax money, typically, to pay taxes on the conversion. And they're the ones that may be in the top tax bracket now, and that top tax bracket's going to be going up higher, a lot higher, in 2011 and in future years. So really, for those people, 2010 is not only their first opportunity to do a Roth conversion, it's the best year to do a Roth conversion. So we highly recommend those sorts of taxpayers, people who have a lot of money, who are now able to convert, take a serious look at it, and seek an advisor. Okay, thank you, Steve. You're listening to the Lang Money Hour. I'm Hannah Hatanen Kane. Invite you to stay tuned as Jim will be right back to talk more smart money. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. We're talking smart money. Jim has been speaking with Steve Komen, and we'd like to now hear what Matt Schwartz has to add. Matt is an estate planning and estate administration attorney who devotes his practice to estate and retirement planning with a particular emphasis on IRA and Roth IRA planning opportunities. He has worked closely with Jim Lang over the past seven years in implementing the Cascading Beneficiary Plan and many other estate planning strategies for our clients. Welcome, Matt. And I just want to add that Matt is a wonderful estate attorney. He, does, he gets along cl with clients beautifully and he and I complement each other very well because I like to 
talk about some of the big picture ideas, which Matt understands completely, and he will sometimes, by the way, correct me on that. And then he works through the the, the with the with the clients and just does a wonderful job of coordinating all the big picture ideas that that Steve might come up with in terms of Roth IRA conversion or amounts and and then clients just have a, a really terrific experience with him. So I'm really glad to, that he's on today. And um, the other thing is technically he's just amazing and that was one of the reasons why I wanted him on today because we have a pretty technical topic today, a very lawyerly topic and Matt is just an, an estate planning attorney extraordinaire so maybe he can shed some light on some of the new tax laws. Okay, first, Matt, though, I'd like to talk about what was the federal estate tax law in 2009? Thank you for the introduction, Hannah. In 2009, the federal estate tax exemption was $3.5 million, and there was a lifetime gift exemption, which still exists today, of $1 million, with a maximum federal estate tax rate of 45%. When clients were talking with me in 2009 and asked me what I thought would happen in 2010, myself, like most of the estate planning community, just thought that the 2009 law would be extended into 2010 because we didn't think we wanted to create an incentive to kill people off uh, at the end of 2010 when the law is supposed to revert back to a $1 million exemption or keep people alive so that their families didn't have to pay estate tax. Well, we were surprised when Congress did not pass a patch at the end of the year to extend the federal estate tax exemption into 2010. So we actually have no estate tax right now at the beginning of 2010. And people can look at this two ways. You can either be very aggressive in doing some planning or you can think that Congress is going to retroactively reenact the estate tax. And if you're aggressive, there's one option that's good and there's one option that's not so good. The not so good option is you could die this year. And if you die this year, there's no federal <laughs> estate tax. What do you think about that, Jim? Well, that, that, that's kind of interesting. So you can have a billion dollars, and if you died last year with that billion, you'd have to pay roughly $400 million in estate tax. But if you die this year then there's no federal estate tax. And can we count on that? So, all right, I have a billion dollars. I die. I leave it to my kids and my grandkids. And they're scot-free. I don't have to worry about anything because I die during a time when there's no federal estate tax. Is that right? Well, if I'm Bill Gates heirs, I'm not thinking about killing off Bill Gates <laughs> anytime soon. I've uh, There was a lot of comment in the estate planning community about whether the federal estate tax would be retroactively reinstated and whether that reinstatement would be constitutional. And some commentators were suggesting to keep their offices open through New Year's weekend to make very aggressive gifts and try to get as much out of people's estates as possible. But as more and more people have studied the topic, the courts have time and time again retroactively retroactively reinstated tax laws. So it is everybody's full expectation that the law will be reinstated, and we just don't know what the estate tax exemption will be and what the tax rate will be. But people are thinking the exemption will be at least $3.5 million, and the maximum estate tax rate will be at least 45%. All 
All right. So what you're saying then is, look, let's let's forget the billion. Let's let's just assume that that I have a taxable estate in two thousand nine dollars, and I die. Let's say between now and they make a tax law change. You're saying that they can make a tax law change and make it work backwards, retroactive, and that's not a violation of the Constitution or a violation of due process or anything else? Well, that's the main argument people make, Jim, that it might be a violation of the due process clause. But there's been Supreme Court cases that have said as long as the tax advances a legitimate government interest, and the government will argue that raising revenue is a legitimate government interest, that the tax can be reinstated. And what about the generation skipping tax? Same deal, that that tax can be reinstated as well. All right, now, I don't think that people are going to say, well, I'm going to die now to avoid tax, but there is a proactive thing that, that some people could do, which is to make significant gifts to their grandchildren. What do you think of, what do you think of that, let's say, for wealthy taxpayers who are interested in skipping a generation, does that make sense in general, and does the current confusion in the federal estate tax give us an opportunity that we might not otherwise have? Or, I, do, you th or do you think it's a risk? Well, there is certainly a risk to it if you weren't thinking of making a large gift anyways or if you were in a situation where you projected that the estate tax exemption was going to rise enough that you wouldn't have had to pay gift tax or federal estate tax. All right, and what about the, what about the ordinary guy? What if, what if a guy doesn't have five or six million? Let's say he has, you know, 750, a million, two million, maybe even three million. Does this concern him? And let's say he has the traditional, he went to one of the downtown firms and he has one of the traditional AB, AB wills. Um, what, what's, the, what's the impact for a guy like that with what is going on and what do you see as the best solution for somebody like that who is trying to plan their estate? The potential impact for a person like that is unwittingly their spouse may end up not having any outright access to money. They may have had a will or trust written based on a federal estate tax formula. And the way the formula works when there's no federal estate tax, their spouse may have everything tied up in trust. So, you know, I, I think I call that the cruelest trap of all in, 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 in the book, Retire Secure. But the essence of it is, is that people who sometimes think they're leaving money to each other um, are actually leaving money into a trust where the surviving spouse doesn't have unlimited restrictions. And then what happens if that surviving spouse becomes incapacitated and her kids become trustees and there's not a great relationship between the kids and mom and maybe the kids don't want to pay a lot of money for support to put mom into a good nursing home and then the money's not there for mom's purposes. So, so basically mom loses control when that wasn't really the intent. Is, is there something in people's wills or re, um, that, that they could know if they have this kind of thing? Um, is there a language? Is, in other words, is there, if there's a bunch of language that people don't understand, is it possible that that's what's in their will? Because a lot of people don't know what's in their will. That, that is true. A lot of people, we had a client in the other day, he said, 
Matt, I believe you drafted this as well as you could, but I'm trusting you to, that says what it says. And we try to draft as clearly as possible. So if you have a lot of language in there about a maximum marital amount or a credit shelter amount or a federal estate tax formula, you likely have one of these tax clause wills. Well, I, I know one of the things that you like to do when you prepare wills in our office is you actually write a letter in English describing what the will says. And we don't see very many of those types of letters from other attorneys. Um, is, is, that, is that one component? And um, could you comment on the, let's call it the volatility of the federal estate tax and how that plays in and what, what type of estate plan you would recommend for, let's say, actually most traditional families that um, are interested in providing for each other and then at the time of the second death to the kids maybe equally? Well, with respect to your comment about the letter, I found over the time, over time, as I'm trying to learn about a technical topic, it's always helpful to have a Cliff Notes version or a version that's easier to understand. And that's one thing I try to do for our clients. I think it's something they're entitled to for the fees they're paying. With respect to the volatility in the federal estate tax, the exemption next year, if there's no change, goes down to a million dollars. So if you have one of these tax clauses, you could either have $3.5 million going into a trust for your spouse or a million dollars, and that makes one big difference. So when we do our drafting, we tend to leave it up to the survivors to choose how much money they want to go outright to their spouse, and the surviving spouse is making that choice, if, and then how much money they want to go into a trust for their lifetime benefit. And perhaps maybe the spouse doesn't need all the money based on their income needs, and maybe they want to pass money directly to their children. Um, and what about what about the grandchildren? Because I remember I I, I think it was um, Ed Slot who said people don't like their kids; they like their grandkids. What what what, what if what if you're now? Of course, I'm not saying you don't like your kids, but what if you are interested in providing for your grandkids? Is is that a possibility with the kind of uh, plans that we do? Oh, it absolutely is a possibility, and often what we see is, Jim, a lot of our clients have most of their assets in retirement plans as opposed to after-tax money that just passes under somebody's will. And as you and I well know, the control of that money is determined by the beneficiary designation as far as where that money is going to go after someone dies. And so often those forms just say, spouse primary children in equal shares so if there's an unusual order of death and one of the children predeceased the survivor of mom and dad and that deceased child had children those children could be left out of an inheritance because the way that designation is written the surviving child gets everything and and isn't it sometimes advantageous to have certain assets go to the children and certain assets go to the grandchildren so let's say for discussion's sake, either the first or even the second death, does it sometimes make sense, for example, for after-tax dollars to go to the children and the Roth IRA conversion dollars to go into specially drafted trusts for the grandchildren? Absolutely, because the grandchildren have a much longer period of time to withdraw the Roth IRA dollars, which is going to maximize 
your tax-free growth. So what you're saying is the type of flexible documents that you're doing will allow, in let's say, the first case, the surviving spouse, and then maybe at the second death, the children, to make strategic decisions on an asset-by-asset basis that will help maximize the value of the estate for the entire family. Yes, that's the, that's the flexibility of our plan. All right, now can you have just a regular plan, the, the traditional plan, and have somebody do that later, or do you have to set everything up ahead of time? Well, you really need to have it set up ahead of time. Uh, the great thing about the plan is you don't have to choose where the money's going you don't have to choose exactly where the money's going to go at death, but you need to have the blueprint there. You need to have all the options set in stone. So so basically the surviving spouse is going to be the boss, and what what are some of the choices that the surviving spouse might typically have in the documents that you typically prepare? Well, one option is they can all they can accept the money in traditional estate planners when there's the possibility of a taxable estate at the second death, worry about that because maybe the spouse is going to get nervous and accept too much money, which is going to cause the second estate to be taxable. And sometimes the response to that is it's that family's money. Uh, They can choose to do what they want to feel secure. All right, so, so basically what you're saying is you like to make the surviving spouse the boss, and if it is, they are the boss, then, then what are their choices in a typical what we call Lang's Cascading Beneficiary Plan? For, first choice is to accept the money. The second choice, which we only generally recommend for after-tax assets, is the money could be held in trust for the surviving spouse for their health, maintenance, and support. The third choice is the spouse can say they don't want any of the money, which would cause the money to pass in to pass to the children, and they could do that with part of the money or all of the money. And the children could further say, I don't want all the money, and they could pass into a well-designed trust for their children that they can control. So many children find that to be attractive. And can they mix and match? That is, they, want, they might want some money outright, some money in trust, some money to kids, and some money to grandkids. Absolutely. It's not an all-or-nothing choice. Well, that that sounds like it's a very flexible plan. Let me ask you this. What if what if you don't trust your spouse? Let's say that maybe your spouse has kids from her own marriage or has completely different values. Would it work for them or do you need one of these I call it leave it to beaver families where you have the husband and wife with the same kids and the same grandkids? Generally, it's better in a leave-it-to-beaver family, but if the second marriage, the husband and wife are on board, it can work in a second marriage context as well. Okay. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back to talk more smart money. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. Here is Jim Lang, CPA attorney, with another Lang Money Minute. The new tax law allows all IRA and retirement plan owners, regardless of income, to qualify for a Roth IRA conversion. If you make a Roth IRA conversion of $100,000, you'll be better off by $40,000 in just 20 years. If you then die and leave the Roth IRA to your children, they could be better off by $700,000. If you leave the Roth IRA to your grandchildren, they could be better off by $8.6 million. 
These numbers do not take inflation into account, but they are peer-reviewed. If you have after-tax dollars in your retirement plan or a non-deductible IRA, there may be a way of making a Roth IRA conversion without having to pay the tax. We also have some favorite strategies centered around recharacterizing or undoing a Roth IRA conversion. Jim Lang, CPA attorney, has developed a spectacularly popular workshop regarding Roth IRA conversions. Jim charges financial firms $10,000 a day to present this workshop. You, however, can attend this workshop for free. Jim is conducting three workshops on Saturday, January 23rd at the Crown Plaza in the South Hills, across from the South Hills Village. The workshops begin at 9.30, 1 o'clock, and 4 o'clock. For your reservation to one of these three workshops, please call 800-387-1129 or go to retiresecure.com. Again, that number is 800-387-1129 or visit our website at retiresecure.com. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQB AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back. Steve, do you have any closing comments for us? I'd just like to mention that a Roth IRA conversion can also save uh, your family money by reducing estate taxes. And 2010 is a unique year with its uh, lower tax rates than you'll ever see in the future as far as we know. And developing a well-designed Roth IRA conversion plan is extremely important to do this year in 2010. Okay, thank you, Steve. And I just want to thank both of you. And if you if you'd like to contact Matt Schwartz, Steve Coleman, or Jim Lang, you can call our office at 412-521-2732. This is Hannah Haytanen Kay and Jim Lang with the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Please join us again on February 10th at 7 p.m. when Jim will be talking smart money. And don't forget to join us for Jim's workshop on Saturday, January 23rd at the Crown Plaza across from South Hills Village. This popular workshop on Roth IRA conversions is being offered at three different times throughout the day, beginning at 9.30 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. To reserve your spot, please call 800-387-1129 or visit us at retiresecure.com. Again, that's 800-387-1129 or www.retiresecure.com. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where one money talks. Portions of the audio that you just heard will be posted online at retiresecure.com. You can also find a list of upcoming events and topics at retiresecure.com.